Hebrews chapter 7, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn there. What we're about is, is uh, we, on Sunday morning, get together. We want to uh, worship the Lord um, in spirit and in truth and do it with a passion. But we're also about raising up uh, ministers, because we're all ministers. And missions trips can be a tremendous uh, opportunity to grow in your ministry, to just grow in your vision for the kingdom. And it, it's very powerful, and so it's something to really to think and pray about. What we're also about is preaching the word. And digging in there and finding the golden nuggets of the Word of God. Now what I want to tell you before I even get into this thing here this morning is this. The way I do sermons is it's not too orthodox, I suppose, but I, uh, um, sometimes on Sunday, but certainly by Monday, I look at the text that I'm going to be preaching on or consider the topic that I have been given to preach on, and I just chew on it. I just think about it, and I walk with it, drive with it, pray with it. Uh, things begin to percolate in my being, and I jot down notes here and there. I don't do any formal, not usually any kind of formal stuff unless I have to research something. And what will happen is I'll think I'm going this way on a sermon, but then that will shut down, and I'll go this way. That's why people who want to know what my text is or my title is beforehand go nuts, because it changes about 18 times before Sunday comes around. Um, but usually by Thursday, it's starting to kind of, I'm starting to get a coherent whole, at least by Friday. Lord, help me by Saturday. Um, but it comes together. And sometimes that's just like, whoa, I see the hole, here it is. It's just boom, it's right there. Other times it's like it was this week. Uh, it's not so boom, there it is. Boom, there it is. It's more of a, where are you? I have never in my life, uh, in, in all the years I've been preaching, never been so frustrated on going down dead-end streets trying to put my hands or arms around a passage. This is, Hebrews 7 is, if there's an unpreachable text, this is it. Um, now you're all so excited, aren't you? I have not been looking forward to this. It's, and it's, it's not that, it's not saying great stuff. It's just that the way it is said, it is so complex, um, it is so Jewish in terms of, uh, of, of the categories of understanding that it presupposes that it's very hard to get out and package it in a way that is really accessible to people. So this has been tough stuff, and I basically want you to feel sorry for me, because it's been a, I worked hard this week. Oh, yeah, you're good. You don't care. Okay, you're saying, feed me, man. I want to hear the word. But here's the thing. There's a point in this. There's a point in this. There's a point for me and a point for you. The point for me is this. There is um, a temptation that preachers can fall into uh, when they think that they have to hit a home run every Sunday to keep the audience happy. That's a temptation. Um, if you buy into that, if, if, if you think that it's your job to uh, keep people sort of semi-entertained, then you will instinctively avoid difficult passages. You won't want to chew on the tough stuff. You, you'll, you'll end up leaning towards uh, the sermons that are more wow, pizzazz, bam, boom, your passion, your heart, easy, accessible, and user-friendly. The Bible's not always that way, though, is it? You've read the Bible, I hope. Uh, it's not always user-friendly. Some of you read it and you go, what the, the what? There is just a, a tremendous value on not avoiding the difficult stuff. Both whether you're preaching to a, a congregation or whether you're reading the Bible on your own, I encourage you to wrestle with the tough stuff. We, we, we sometimes read the newspaper or we read cheap novels, and if we don't understand part of it, we just blah, 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 and go on. 
Don't do that with the Word of God. If, if God inspired it there, there's a reason for it being there, and it will reward you if you'll chew on it and struggle with it. A lot of the Bible is hard to understand. It is. Some people just give up reading it on their own because it's hard to understand. I encourage you not to do that. If you read the Word of God and chew on it, even when you don't understand, understand it, God will reward you for it. It will build faith. It will just, you don't even understand it, but it will start percolating. It will start germing, germinating, whatever. Um, read it. Wrestle with it. Get a commentary. Chew on it. God calls us to worship Him with all of our heart like we did, but also to worship Him with all of our mind. Mind. He gave us these nuggets for a reason. And some passages of Scripture require a lot of our mind to chew apart. It is not initially exciting, maybe. Uh, it's kind of work. But it will pay off. And we are called, God never says, I've said, go forth and be exciting. He wants us to go forth and be faithful, whether it's exciting or not. Understanding the Word of God is an end in and of itself. Just to take a passage and work hard at understanding it. Whether you can apply it or not is secondary. Just understand what the Lord is saying. And there's a lot of value in this. So we're going to attack head-on Hebrews 7, 7 here this morning and dig into it. Before we read the text, I want to, in fact, what, I'm, what I have here this morning is an overhead. I, I, I worked hard at breaking this down, um, and I think an overhead will just sort of help us keep some things clear. We are talking about Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Um, and... A typology of Melchizedek and Christ's priesthood over and against the Leviticus priesthood. That verse is there should be V-E-R-S-U-S. Thank you very much. Uh, spelling's never been my forte. But don't, you laugh at my woundedness. It's not my fault. Okay, so the theme here is we're looking at this very interesting, odd and unusual figure of Melchizedek. If we understand Melchizedek, and it's not going to be all that easy, but if we understand Melchizedek, we're going to understand a whole lot more about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, and that is something worth struggling for. The first thing we need to understand is the problem. The problem that the author is addressing in Hebrews chapter 7. Almost every verse of the Bible is there because it's, it's addressing some human issue that people have. And to understand the verse, you need to understand the problem that the verse is being spoken towards. Here's the problem that the author is addressing in Hebrews chapter 7. You're dealing with Jewish Christians who are beginning to uh, grow weak in their faith. Their faith is being shaken. They're thinking about abandoning their faith in Jesus Christ as their high priest and going back to their ancient Judaism. Um, and part of that ancient Judaism is the Levitical priesthood. The Levitical priesthood is this. The tribe of Levi in the Old Testament, there's 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes was given the job of being a priest to the whole nation. A priest is somebody, basically the, what the word means is, you represent the people to God and, the, and God to the people. You're a God-humanity go-between. Your job is to be an advocate for the people before God. That's what the, Levit the, the Levitical priesthood is all about. And the way they did that in the Old Testament, as you know, perhaps, was by offering sacrifices on a regular basis on behalf of the people. We have some detailed descriptions in the Old Testament about what kind of animals are to be killed and in what way they're to be killed as a sacrifice for people's sins. That's what the Levitical priesthood was all about. These Christians are thinking about abandoning their faith in Jesus and going back and embracing their Judaism, part of which was this Levitical priesthood. 
The author of Hebrews 7 wants to convince these Christians not to do that. That's, the, the, that's what he's getting at. He wants to prove to them that Christ is the high priest, that he came and made a sacrifice for all sins, and therefore you don't need to be sacrificing pigeons and animals and doves and goats anymore to atone for your sins. Don't go back to that when you've got Jesus. That's the point of what he's getting at. Okay, now how do you convince Jewish Christians that Jesus Christ is the high priest? To convince a Jew in the first century of anything, you had to argue from the Old Testament. Okay, this is why you find throughout the New Testament, whenever they're evangelizing Jews, they always appeal to the Old Testament. It is the Word of God. The Jews hold this up in very high regard. And so what the early Christians wanted to do was to show how in the Old Testament, you have Jesus Christ anticipated. The Old Testament looks forward to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills the Old Testament. What they especially like to do is to point out passages in the Old Testament that aren't easily understood except in the light of Jesus Christ. You follow me here? Do not give up. Wrestle with me here. Struggle. For example, Isaiah 53, 800 years before Jesus was ever born, you've got this incredible description of Jesus Christ. There's a guy who's going to come, and he is going to be the Lord, and, uh, the, and yet the God the Father is going to uh, uh, bruise him and punish him for the sins of all the people, and he will be uh, um, uh, executed with criminals, but buried in a rich person's tomb. That's all there in Isaiah 53, 800 years before Jesus ever comes around. Jesus comes around, and as a matter of fact, he does exactly that. He's crucified with thieves, but he's buried in a rich man's tomb. He fulfills the prophecy. If you don't believe in Jesus, then what do you do with Isaiah 53? Who's Isaiah 53 referring to? The Jews didn't know. It was a pause, a mystery. But that's why you can appeal to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of that prophecy. This is what this author is doing in Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to see him doing this. He's going to go back to a, a, a very strange and enigmatic figure in the Old Testament named Melchizedek. Here's who Melchizedek is. Melchizedek was this man that Abraham met. Abraham was the father of all the Jews. Abraham had just uh, been in a battle, and he just had defeated a bunch of kings, and he had a bunch of booty, a bunch of spoils from that battle. He was very, very wealthy at this present moment. He meets this person named Melchizedek. Now, we're not told anything about this Melchizedek, except that he was the king of Salem, which was a Canaanite town. It later became Jerusalem and that he was a priest of the Most High God. But he was a Canaanite. Abraham, for reasons we're not told, offered up tithes to him. He gave him 10% of everything we had. he had. And then Melchizedek blessed him. That's all we hear about Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. There's one other reference to Melchizedek, and that's in Psalms 110, verse 4. When God says to David, in the end of time, or not in the end of time, but in the last days, uh, one who is a king like David will come, and he will be a king and a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, a Jew at the time would have to be asking the question, what the heck are you talking about? A priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is this order of Melchizedek? Our priests come from the Levites. We've got our priesthood. They offer up the animals and the pigeons and the doves and the goats on our behalf. What is this order of Melchizedek? Nobody knows. Nobody ever knew until Jesus came along. And so what this author is going to do is he's going to try to show how Melchizedek is a figure of Jesus and how the Messiah, 
how the priesthood of the Messiah that's after the order of Melchizedek is greater than the, than the Levitical priesthood. Don't run the aisles just yet. It gets better. The main point he's arguing for is found in the, and it's always good in a passage to ask, what's the problem and what's the solution? And then you try to figure out everything in between. That's how it works. What's the problem? You got the problem. Now, what's the solution? I'm going to read it to you. And then, for the next two weeks, our, our, our job will be to understand everything in between. And it's worth it because God said it and we need to understand it and that settles it for me. Okay. Here's what he says. Hebrews chapter 8. It would help if I got the right book, wouldn't it? Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point in what I'm saying, the author says, now, see, even he knew he lost his audience. Okay, so it's like, okay, here's the main thing I'm trying to get at, all right? We have such a high priest. He's been talking about Melchizedek, and we'll get to it in a second. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. That means he's just in the power position of God. He's a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. The point of the whole thing is to say, Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians, we've got a priest in the order of Melchizedek. You don't need to be going back to the, to, to the Levitical priesthood anymore. Okay, praise the Lord. Now we're going to read the first part of Hebrews chapter 7. Listen very carefully, and then you'll appreciate why this has been kind of tough. We'll read the first half of it this week and the next half of it next week. To understand Hebrews 7, you've got to go back one verse into Hebrews 6. The chapter and verse designations, in case you didn't know, are not part of the inspired Bible. They were put in about a thousand years after the Bible was initially written as a way of kind of keeping things organized and stuff. Um, and sometimes the way they, they break up chapters is arbitrary, and this is a case in point. Chapter 7, I think, should start with about verse 19. But let's read verse 20. It says, Where Jesus, he's talking about the Holy of Holies, a forerunner on our behalf, has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Okay, that's in the end of chapter 6. He quotes Psalms 110, verse 4 there. And now he's going to explain what that means. No one's known up to this point. What do you mean, order of Melchizedek? Here he goes. Chapter 7. This King Melchizedek of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham as he was returning from defeating the kings in Genesis chapter 14, and he blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of all that he had. He paid tithes to him. Why? We don't know. Well, I think I do, but they didn't. His name in the first place means King of Righteousness. Next, he is also called King of Salem, that is, King of Peace, from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. What are you talking about? Who is this guy who doesn't have a father or a mother? He doesn't have a beginning of days or end of days, and they didn't have genetic engineering back then. What's the deal here? Who is this guy? I don't know. I'll figure it out by next week. In the meantime, you study it. Don't make me do all the work. You read this stuff. Someone give me an answer next week. But it's, it's isn't that strange? You're going, what, 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 what? I mean, not just like that, but. Verse 4. Look how great he is. Look how great this Melchizedek is. Even Abraham, the patriarch, the father of all of us Jews, even Abraham, the patriarch, gave him a tenth of his spoils. Now, hang on. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to collect tithes from the people, that is, from their kindred, though these also are descended from Abraham. 
But this man, Melchizedek, who does not their ancestry, collected tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had received the promise. Okay, so Melchizedek received tithes from Abraham and uh, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Verse 7, It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Crucial little thing there. We'll get to it in a second. In the one case, tithes are received by those who are mortal. That's the Jewish people. In the other, by one of whom... Um, it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who is the father of all these Levitical priests, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Can everybody say praise the Lord? Yes, glory. Okay. Do you, do you, can you appreciate what I've been going through this week, please, somebody? All right, now I... What I'm going to do here is I broke, I, I'm going to give you an overview of his argument right there. Here's what he's getting at. And then I'm going to break, it, uh, break down eight different points he's making. We'll get to the first one today. Okay? Uh, the, the basic argument right there, the central argument right there, is this. Here's what he's saying. Melchizedek is to Christ. Melchizedek is to Christ what Abraham is to the Levites. He's drawing a parallel here. Christ, Melchizedek was a type of Christ, and Abraham was the forefather of the Levites, okay? So whatever you can say about Melchizedek, you can say about Christ. Whatever you can say about Abraham, you can say about the Levites. Second point. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Am I spelling again? I know, I know, I know! I make up for it in other regards. Melchizedek's great. How do you know Melchizedek's greater than Abraham? Well, look at Abraham, who is the hero of hero of heroes in the Old Testament. He paid tithes to Melchizedek. That's a way of saying you are over me, okay? Also, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. You can only bless from a, from a position of authority. Therefore, Melchizedek is over Abraham. This interesting, odd, and unusual, enigmatic, and quite paradoxical figure of Melch the Old Testament has got tremendous authority. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and therefore, here's the point he's making, therefore Christ is greater than the, than the Levitical priesthood. That's the point he's driving at throughout this whole thing. The order of priests which follows Melchizedek is greater than the order of priests that follows the Levites. And to, go, to understand that, you go back to Abraham and, uh, and Melchizedek. You understand their relationship, you'll understand the relation between the Levites and, and Abraham. And if you understand that relationship, you'll understand the beauty and the power and the significance of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to treat this, this passage thematically. I'm going to look at different themes that occur. And there are eight. And it's going to pick up a little bit here. Okay, so hang with me. Um, and the first one, there's eight different themes. Eight, eight different ways that Christ is superior to, to, to the Levitical priesthood. Eight different, eight, eight different ways. And the first way is this. Melchizedek, the Bible says, and the Jews in the first century would have noticed this, of Melchizedek it says that he is a king and a priest. He's a king and a priest. The Levitical priesthood, however, was inferior to that because it was a priesthood under a king. No Levite was ever a king. No Levite ever could be a king. The Levites, in effect, worked for the king. But Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. And in Psalms 110, verse 4, the Lord says, There's coming one, 
the Messiah, he will again do what Melchizedek had. He will unite the office of king and the office of priest. The Levitical priesthood was actually very narrow in its jurisdiction. They could only deal with the temple vices and carry out the law in a, in, a, in a prescribed way, and that was their total jurisdiction. Maintaining the temple was one of the areas of government in the Old Testament, but the king was over them all. The Levites worked for one area of the government. That's why paying the tithes was, there, was a form of taxation to the government. But the king is the one who had ultimate authority. The king in the Old Testament, in fact, throughout the ancient world, the king had unquestionable, unilateral, unequivocal, uncompromisable authority. If the king said it, it was law. A king could do as he pleased, and the Levites could do nothing about it. If the king wanted to go to war, and the Levites didn't agree with it, too bad for the Levites. If the king wanted to execute an innocent man, and, and some Levitical priest thought that was the wrong thing to do, too bad, the king can do whatever he wants. If the king wants to let a guilty man go free, if he wants to pardon somebody, the king has that authority, because the king has absolute authority. That's what makes him a king. And the Levites are in a position where they can't supersede the king. What this author is doing here is he's saying that separation between the authority of king and the role of priest needs to be united again. And it was united in Melchizedek, and Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and it is reunited in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is a priest who is also a king. He carries out his priestly functions with a kingly authority and his kingly functions with a priestly authority. The Bible says in Matthew 25, among many other places, Jesus refers to himself coming in the last days. He says, the Son of Man will come and the King will say to those on his right, enter into my kingdom, the kingdom of my Father, which has been prepared for you. But to those on his left, he shall say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, I never knew you. And he can do that on the judgment day. He can carry out that mandate because he is the king. And nobody can challenge the king. The Bible says, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15 and 16, that Jesus Christ is the only potentate. That means he's the one who holds ours. He's the one who holds all the power. And he is, the Bible says in verse 16, the king of every king and the lord of every lord. That is to say, however great Saddam Hussein thinks he is, or however great President Clinton thinks he is, or however, however great any king on this planet thinks that they are, they ought to recognize, whether they do or not, they ought to recognize that they are themselves subject to a higher king, and the Bible tells us the name of that king, and it is the Lord Jesus. Amen? Amen. You find it. Praise the Lord. You find the same thing happening in the book of Revelation. You have a, an, an incredible, over and over again, an incredible picture of the throne of God and the Lamb of God seated on that throne. And he is the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world. That's his priestly function. But he's also the Lamb before whom all the nations are going to bow. That's his kingly function. The two are united. And so Revelation 17, 14 says once again, he's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Word of life, the Son of God. Revelation 19, verse 16 says the same thing. The King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. Jesus Christ comes in, in a humble little form of an innocent lamb, a Jewish carpenter in the first century. But you got to know this, as he's walking around and doing his stuff and dying on the cross, this one here is the king of the entire universe. Amen? There's no higher authority above him. His word, because it's his word, because he's king, it is law. 
This is the one about whom it says in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, that he is before all things. Why? Because he's the king. He is above all things. Why? Because he is the king. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 tells us that he's the one who holds. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, holds all things together by the word of his power. Because he's the king, he created all things, authority over all things, because he's the king of kings. He's the king of all things. Today you get a lot of opinions about Jesus Christ. Some want to compliment him by saying, well, you know, he was a great wise teacher. He was, a, he was an insightful human being. Um, really had a, a, a better than average ethics. Some would say that he's in fact, a lot of New Agers today say this about Jesus. He is, he is one of the uh, ascended masters. He, one, one author I read said, Jesus Christ was the single most self-actualized individual who ever uh, realizes inner divinity. Makes me just want to run, oh yes, hallelujah. And you can pile compliment upon compliment and attribute upon, upon attribute to Jesus Christ. And maybe you're even doing it with a sincere heart, trying to say, you know, he's just as great as Buddha and Muhammad and the rest. And maybe he's even a quarter of an inch above that. But any opinion of Jesus Christ that stops short of saying that he is the singular king over all is in effect an insult to him. Because you're shooting infinitely below who he actually is. It's not like you're getting closer and closer and closer to him the more you say, better, better, better human. No, any classification short of what Paul said about Jesus, that he's God over all, blessed forever, Romans 9, 5. He's the great God and Savior, Titus 2, 13. He, he, uh, the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily, Colossians 2, 9. Anything short of that, anything that qualifies that, anything that compromises that, ends up setting yourself against that. And you're now resisting the authority of the king of the universe. And I want to tell you here this morning that if you're in that position, you're in a very dangerous spot. Setting yourself against the power that created and sustains all things is not a good thing to all the authority. And what he says goes. On the other hand, to everybody who bows their knee and recognizes him in his rightful spot, recognizes him in his true identity as king of all and therefore as the rightful owner of me and having total authority over their lives. Anyone who does that, now hear this, all that I just said about the king is now said about him as a priest. He becomes your priest when you recognize him as king and trust him as priest. Lord, help me with this one. All of that power, all of that authority, the authority that spoke the cosmos into existence, the authority that holds every molecule on the stand and in this body in existence right now, the authority that spoke and there were billions of stars, billions of galaxies, that God with that authority, that might, that incomprehensible power, every ounce of it, the minute you say yes to Jesus Christ, every ounce of it now is channeled, as it were, to his being a priest on your behalf. He now wants to represent you and cleanse you before God. The authority that created the cosmos is now geared towards, channeled towards, like a laser beam, on getting you forgiven, on getting you justified, on getting you right before God. God now uses the same power that he spoke the world in existence, the same power that shall crush all who resist him. That same power now becomes your advocate the minute you believe. That's the value of seeing that Jesus Christ is both a king and a priest. 
He is the supreme court in heaven, and therefore what he says go. And if, if he, as the king, decides to use every ounce of his authority to pardon you of all your sins, to cleanse you of all your sins, to cast them from you, he's got the right to do it. And the Bible promises this, that to everybody who says yes to him, that's exactly what he does. He leverages the power of the Godhead on your forgiveness. Because he's king and because he's priest. And the Levites do anything like that. That's why Paul says in, in the book of Romans, chapter 8, starting with verse 35, after discussing the forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ, Paul says, what shall we say about these things? This forgiveness, this grace, what shall we say about these things? If God Almighty is for us, who could possibly be against us? It is God who justifies who can lay any charge to God's elect. Who can accuse us? Who can prosecute us? The chief authority in the land, in the solar system, in the galaxy, in the cosmos, this is my paraphrase of Paul now, the, the chief authority has pardoned us. And if the chief authority, the high council, the supreme court of the universe has pardoned us, using all of that authority to wipe us clean and now to present us spotless before the Father, then it is a done deal. That's why Paul can say, praise God, that there is there if now for sure no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The highest court in the land has pronounced it so. And now Hebrews 7, verse 25, we'll get to it next week, says this, He lives to make intercession for us. He lives to make intercession for us. Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for us. If you ask me, why do you, why do you, why do you live, Greg? <laughs> You're asking me, what's the passion of my heart? What is it I get out of bed in the morning for? What is it that just turns me on? What is it that I just, you know, think about all the time? Why do you live? And I would say, well, I live, and I'll give you three different things, uh, or four different things. I, here's why I live. But Jesus Christ lives to make intercession for you. I can speak. He gets out of bed in the morning, praise God, to intercede on your behalf, to do the priestly function of representing you before the Father. He lives to make intercession for you. And the one we're talking about is the king. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is saying this. He, Jewish Christians, why would you ever forsake that to go back to your religious system of animal sacrifices. Why would you forsake the high priest, the one who the Old Testament points towards, why would you forsake him for this system of day after day, every time you sin, you've got to do it over again? Why would you go back to that? Why would you settle for a religious system that, that, that the best it can possibly do is, is momentarily bring you closer to God? Why would you trust in a priesthood whose job is as fellow human beings to bring you closer to God when God himself wants to be your priest? It doesn't make sense. The whole purpose for that Levitical system of sacrifices was to point to the one in the future who would be himself the sacrifice and would have the authority to say it irrevocably, irreversibly, once and for all, that you are forgiven. Hang on, he's telling the Hebrew Christians. Now, probably most of us don't, we're not really tempted with the, uh, the uh, you know, sacrificing animals to forgive us our sins like the Jews were. Probably no one's going to walk out of here and really struggle with whether or not you should kill a pigeon because you, 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 you swore today or something. 
Um, oh, I backslid. I killed a dog. Or, I don't know. Um, <laughs> look at. But <laughs> someone got. It. But we've got our own. Look at. We've got our own Levitical system. A Levitical system, if I may speak this way, is anything, any that we would trust to inch us closer to God on our own. See, that, you know, there is a temptation if you're a Jew in the first century. These, the, the sacrifice, you can see it, you can control it, it's yours. You don't have to trust an invisible Savior to be forgiven. Christianity requires you to wager your eternity on the sufficiency of the cross. And that's hard for these people to do. There's something about human nature that loves to control. We, 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 we like it when it's in our hands. And so we have our own Levitical thing, uh, something we can control, which if we just do it, we're closer to God. If we just do it, we get a little more favor from God. If we just do it enough, we're going to be all right with God. And we trust that. I'm right with God, you know, because I'm such a, uh, a uh, responsible and consistent churchgoer. And that makes me feel really holy. And I'm right with God because I read my Bible on a daily basis. And I'm right with God because I do these three ministries. And I'm right with God because I pay tithes and other people don't. Or I'm right with God because my life is so together and my marriage is so together. And I'm just a cool, holy person. And when I think about that and I can just do that enough, I feel closer to God. You're, you're trusting in a Levitical system, a system of religion, a system of behavior to inch you closer to God. And there's no security in that. It can be good one day and bad the next, and that's why you get Christians who feel more saved one day and less saved the next. But even worse than that is if it works. Because now you're trusting in something that's going to prevent you from having a genuine relationship with the Savior. Jesus isn't interested in and being related to your behavior. He's interested in being related to you. And that requires trust. It requires love. What would you think of a husband who trusted in the solidity of his marriage because he sends a card once a week? You'd ask, I have a relationship. A genuine relationship, so you don't need the card to give you security. Now, if you've got the relationship, there'll be cards. But the cards are there because of the relationship. The relationship isn't there based on the cards. You see the, 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 the difference? So also when we trust in things that we do to get us, to inch us closer to God, to, to be a priest before us and God, to mediate our relationship with God, we lose out on having the real, internal, trusting relationship the Lord has always wanted with, with his people. When you have that relationship, the church, the Bible reading, the, the moving out of sin, that comes. It's a, the reality of your life changes, and that's a necessary corollary. But there's always a temptation to fall back into trusting that. And looking at that as a criteria for how am I doing today? How's the barometer doing? Don't go back, the author is saying. Abandon the system of religion. God's never been interested in religion. He's interested in relationship. And cling to Jesus Christ, who is your king, who is your high priest, who will wash you spotless and make you right with God if you put your trust in him and enter into that covenantal relationship with him and walk with him. Believer this morning, I close with this. Speaking to believers first. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you genuinely related to Jesus Christ? Or are you doing the Levitical thing? Not with pigeons and doves and goats, but with religious this and religious that. Trust in Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with your religious this and religious that, but don't wager anything on it. That's not your trust. Don't have a real behavior. Have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning 
and you have never consciously, out of your will, enthroned Jesus Christ as king in your life. You need to do that. You're in a dangerous spot. I say that not to scare anybody, but just because it's true. You are at odds with the king who created you. Getting right with him is the most important thing you could ever do, and it, is, it couldn't be simpler. You just accept him into your life. You turn over the reins of your life to him and say, I want you to be king of my life. You don't have to understand everything I talked about here this morning. You don't have to have a lot of background. You don't have to have any background. It doesn't matter what your background is. What matters is where you are right this moment. Are you willing to bow and make him Lord of your life? And if you are, I just want to encourage you to come forward when we close. And there'll be some people up here who will just lead you in a simple prayer that changes your eternal destiny. I encourage you to do that here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ to be our priest and to be our king. And Jesus, we thank you for, Lord, using your authority, which is second to none, and living to make intercession for us with that authority. Father, I pray that each one of us, as we go out of here, could have a deeper appreciation for what it means to call you king and for what it means to call you our high priest. And Father, I pray that our trust would be exclusively in you and what Jesus Christ has done for us and in nothing else. And Lord, for any here this morning who are thinking about being a disciple of yours, I pray that the Holy Spirit would draw them and that they would not resist. Draw them, Father, and get them into a saving relationship with you. Be at work, our Holy Spirit, even as we're dismissed. In your name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. <laughs>